millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Brexit means Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hello and welcome to Mid Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic, generally from the perspective of the other. I'm Royfield Brown, who's back in my hometown of Birmingham. It's a day before my birthday. I've just cut a cake with Ma and Pa. Uh, today we're joined by Mike Holden, who's in Burnley in England. Steve Crone, who I believe he is in Los Angeles. Kelly Saunders, who's in Georgia somewhere. I'm going to guess Atlanta. Steve O'Neill. I believe you're in London. Ayanna Butler, uh, you're new to our stage. Where exactly are you today, Ayanna? Washington. Woo! She's in the swamp, folks. And we have Dr. Dan. Dr. Dan, please remind me where you're domiciled. Right next to Ayanna, Washington. Boom. Uh, there is your panel, uh, as is the way with Mid-Atlantic. Uh, no doubt before the end of the podcast, you'll have a few more people on stage, which is kind of somewhat apropos for me to say, this is how this works. 5,000 of you good people download this podcast every time I put one out. So if you are listening to this podcast, uh, why don't you join a live podcast by quite simply going on to App Store of your choice and downloading the Clubhouse app. And then uh, when you've done that, uh, find the Mid-Atlantic Club become a member and then whenever we go live with a room you can join us but in a week that has seen the UK put more uh, restrictions on um, the freedom of movement of UK citizens because of the pandemic we can ask quite simply how do you end a pandemic we can't yet assume that Omicron is less severe than previous variants. So while the picture may get better, and I sincerely hope that it will, we know that the remorseless logic of exponential growth could lead to a big rise in hospitalizations and therefore, sadly, in deaths. And that's why it's now the proportionate and the responsible thing to move to Plan B in England, while continuing to work closely with our colleagues in the devolved administrations. So we slow the spread of the virus, 
buy ourselves the time to get yet more boosters into arms and especially in the older and more vulnerable people and understand the answers to the key outstanding questions about Omicron. So, first, we will reintroduce the guidance to work from home. Second, from this Friday, we will further extend the legal requirement to wear a face mask to most, to most public indoor venues, including theatres and cinemas. We'll also make the NHS COVID pass mandatory for entry into nightclubs and venues where large crowds gather. The NHS COVID pass can still be obtained with two doses, but we will keep this under review as the boosters roll out. And having taken clinical advice since the emergence of Omicron, a negative lateral flow test will also be sufficient. As we set out in Plan B, we will give businesses a week's notice, so this will come into force in a week's time. Dr. Dan, let's start with you. The US has had 790,000 deaths attributed to COVID. India has had 474. Brazil has had 616,000. The UK has had 146,000. And Russia has had just under 300,000. By any historical measure, a lot of people have died in this pandemic. We've had pandemics before. Obviously, there was the Black Death in medieval Europe. We've had um, other ones, but I think the one which is probably most similar to this is the flu pandemic, which happened at the end of the First World War. It's called Spanish flu, but actually started in North America, I believe in an army barracks, actually, in the United States, and it killed 20 million people. How do we end a pandemic? At what point, whilst looking at the science, Dr. Dan, do we say, right, this thing has mutated, this thing has infected, this thing has killed X amount of people. At what point do we realize the new normal and we learn to live with it? And I use the fact that The Guardian, the newspaper that I read every day, prints up numbers of UK deaths. It doesn't print up numbers of UK deaths of the flu or the common cold, but it does that for COVID. At what point, Dr. Dan, do we move on and learn to live with COVID? Thank you, Royfield. Um, I'm Dr. Dan. I'm an emergency physician uh, by trade. I think it's important to introduce myself. I'm a former Obama administration biodefense and public health appointee and a health communicator and a military war vet. I think with regards to the pandemic, at least um, calling an end or calling a bottom is uh, difficult. Um, it's like catching a fallen knife. We keep getting these stops and starts. And until there's vaccine equity actually worldwide, I think we'll still be within the pandemic. So it's just a different phase. The question is, where are we now in that phase? And this is probably the phase where we, at least we've got the system lubed enough where we have an idea of what needs to be done. And the question is, do we have the willpower um, to execute those things, uh, meaning the testing, um, the tracing, the uh, vaccination, of course, and also the public will, politics aside, and trying to really get a hold of it and understanding any, we're only as strong as our weakest link. And if we understand that concept, then I think we can start to begin to have some end in sight. But for now, it stops and starts um, and will continue to be in this cycle. It is here 
pretty much to stay for a minute. Thank you for that uh, great start to the show. Uh, you mentioned will and the, you know, the public will. There's also a political will. Uh, Mike Holden, tell us what Boris Johnson announced today in the UK. After uh, a few weeks of saying he would not go back to what he calls Plan B, he's now uh, announced that it's coming in, which is more restrictions on businesses. He's actually requested people should work at home if they uh, can. Uh, COVID passports, i.e. Um, proof of vaccination or proof of negative test will be required at any large venues. In a bizarre twist, today uh, in his uh, press conference, he said people should work at home if they can, but they should go to the Christmas party, which is uh, an unusual angle to take was is that Mike? Because there was this, uh, there has been this uh, mini brouhaha between him and I believe one of his press secretaries actually resigned because of some joke about the Christmas party. Is was this a little bit of Johnson humour, or is he making a wider point about the lack of socialisation which people are maybe missing because of the pandemic? Well, clearly the uh, the, the Christmas party thing, which uh, a lot of you uh, American. Listeners may not be aware of that there was a, a strong lockdown this time last year. Uh, and at the time it was happening, um, there were parties happening in number 10 Downing Street that were against the rules that were being imposed on the rest of it. And one of his press secretaries, who was due to be uh, Allegra Stratton, who was due to be lined up to be uh, in a similar position to the press secretary uh, for the president, was rehearsing questions and admitted or laughed or joked about this party. And she's now fallen on a sword and, and resigned. But there's an awful lot of anger in Parliament from his own side about these additional restrictions. And in fact, someone in Parliament today, one of his, his own MPs in Parliament today, asked if these restrictions coming in today were distraction tactic. Gotcha. Uh, let's have a little bit of a kind of a global perspective. So that's the UK, literally three hours before recording Boris Johnson in a press conference. You heard the clip. He's given new restrictions for us Brits, or at least the English. I don't, I don't ever quite understand what's different between England, Ireland, uh, Northern Ireland and Scotland in this regard. But anyway, these are English restrictions. Steve Crone, you're in Los Angeles. Tell us what are the restrictions, if any, at the moment? Are people walking around with masks? How does it feel in this COVID pandemic if you're in Los Angeles at the moment? Well, I guess the main thing to emphasize, especially for your UK uh, and other non-US listeners, is obviously this is a state-by-state state and to some extent county-by-county county issue. Now, you asked what it's like in Los Angeles, and I will tell you that, but I wanted to start out by saying that that is indeed only relevant to Los Angeles County, and uh, things are very different depending on where you live in the United States. Um, in Los Angeles, the LA County uh, now requires that in order to go into any public place, pretty much uh, a public uh, indoor building, restaurant, club, whatever, you, you have to show proof of vaccination. I see the signs up everywhere. I personally have not been checked every single time I've gone inside somewhere, as, as I believe you are supposed to be checked. And I, I should clarify, I don't believe you need to be checked for things like grocery stores or shopping, things where you wouldn't be expected to take off your mask. But I think clubs, restaurants, places where food's being served, etc., you have to show proof of vaccination. Uh, in terms of just wearing masks, again, in Los Angeles, 
not typical, I don't think, of the country. I see most folks definitely wearing masks inside. Some are even wearing them outside. I would say the biggest loophole, if I could call it that, is anywhere where food or drink is being served. A restaurant, obviously, a bar, a movie theater. The rule is you can take off your mask while you're eating or drinking. And I certainly do see in restaurants and movie theaters that people just sort of take off their mask to, you know, sip the soda or drink the popcorn or eat the lunch. And it doesn't necessarily really go back on. Kelly, you're on the East Coast. You're in Georgia. We were told, at least at the start of this pandemic, that, you know, the, the liberal bits of America treated this pandemic very differently in terms of their behaviours. Overtly, people were wearing masks and, and businesses were adhering to the rules. Was that the case in your bit of Georgia? Actually, right now I'm in Tennessee in a very small town south of Nashville, mm -hmm. but I live south of Atlanta. I would say that that, that is broadly true. It, it's not true to the extent that I think a lot of people expect it to be. Where I where I live in Georgia is not too far from Atlanta, and there is there are very there haven't been very many regulations in place since maybe late spring of last year. But uh, mask wearing has pretty much continued as you get closer to the city. You see a lot more of it. Where I am in Tennessee, however, is in terms of mask wearing, it's very different. In terms of people socializing, in general. You wouldn't know that there's a pandemic. Um, you see very elderly people wearing masks in this part of the country. But outside of that, it's pretty much 2019 visually. There's, I've, I've never shown my vaccine card in either state, honestly. But I also haven't been in the city of Atlanta very much. And I also just have, have actively stayed away from restaurants and, and things. Right. I'm going to quickly jump to Dr. Terry Givens. You've joined us. Dr. Terry, you're in Toronto, I believe. Now, I was in Montreal, but I'm spending I, two weeks ago. I was in Montreal. But now I'm back in California. Crumbs. So I can talk about both places. Which All right. Uh, I'm in the San Francisco Bay Area, which is San Francisco, I would say, has a lot more in common with Montreal than some of these other places in terms of the fact that San Francisco is requiring a vaccine passport for restaurants. People are still wearing masks. I actually live south of San Francisco and are, as Steve was saying, you know, every county is different. So at the county I'm in, San Mateo is not requiring vaccine passports, but people are masking indoors and sometimes outdoors is similar to what's happening in Los Angeles. And, but in Quebec has its own vaccine passport and is requiring that as well as uh, you have to be vaccinated for travel. So I've been going through the, the, the not the quarantine, fortunately, but the, you know, getting tested before leaving for Montreal, being tested on the way back and so on. But I think this, there is, are, have been outbreaks of Omicron here in the San Francisco area. I just was reading about a, an outbreak. And then I think uh, I have family in Arizona that is experiencing COVID now. So, I, and I suspect it may be Omicron, but in any case, very similar situations in all the different places I've been. Thank you, Dr. Terry. Steve, Dr. Terry and Steve have kind of talked about vaccine passports. Why was there this ongoing debate in uh, British political circles uh, this summer about the efficacy 
our vaccine passports. Now we seem to have them a little, i.e. if you're going to go into a nightclub, you need to show some level of kind of vaccination. But why politically was this a hot potato, do you think? So I think there was a reluctance. It was a kind of Tory in a, in internal politics thing was the big part of it. And there's an issue with a number of backbenchers they have that I think they're even called the COVID recovery group, supposedly, that have issues with lots of restrictions, but I think take issues with vaccine passports. So I suspect a lot of it was internal politics in the Tory party. I mean, you could say that Britain is a kind of place that doesn't like these kind of like sort of restrictions between people differently. And, and so I'm not sure how popular they would be. But I do think it's an internal thing. There is an interesting debate now with the new variants, particularly the Omicron variant, that that might be transmissible, even if you've got a vaccine. It kind of it makes vaccine passports look a little bit um, redundant, I would suppose, if, if it's not going to give you that much protection from passing the virus on. But that's I think it's been less about that particular concern and more about sort of squeamishness in on some of the right wing here. Uh, Ayanna, I just want to come to you and ask you uh, the last question about kind of the kind of the general feeling of how observant people are on the ground to mandates and and wearing masks. Have you dis- discerned any level of fatigue with the good citizens of Washington in terms of obeying these kind of COVID rules? I will say generally about this area, we are very close and share a lot of commuters and families with Maryland to our north and Virginia to our south. And so that does impact in a lot of ways, some of the decisions and the way that our rules and our requirements have been shaped. In a lot of ways, they're in lockstep with the other counties that border us so that there's continuity and reliability with expectations. I think that we tend to have a population here that tends to be much more observant of the regulations and, for lack of a better way to say it, less inclined to challenge the scientific evidence. We do make our officials accessible for question asking and answering and have done regular press conferences to the tune of multiple a week sometimes to make sure that that the government is providing the information to people that they need. So I think that we've been able to get ahead of that challenging of rules. But I think there's another nuance to the question that you're asking, and that is about people being just tired of the virus being around and the protections. People want to see their friends and family. People want to dine out and go back to their old life. And so... When I do go out, like was said, I think by Steve out in LA, because the rules don't require you to have your mask while you're eating for obvious reasons, people do tend to go to restaurants and forget to put them back on. And whether that's intentional or not, I don't, I don't think that it is that that kind of behavior happens more and more as people sort of just get tired of pulling their mask back up. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't consider it in a nefarious way. But people are generally observant. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Dan, as I understand, and please tell me if I'm wrong here, uh, because you you are the, the, the medical expert here. But as I understand it, generally with these types of viruses, there is a, it gets, however it gets released into the population, it gets released. And we have no immunity to it. So it's going to uh, wreak its worst 
because our bodies don't have the natural defenses to it. Some of us are healthier than others, et cetera, et cetera. And then that wave goes. Then there is a second wave, which is fundamentally some level of mutation on the first. And generally, that doesn't wreak as much havoc on, on the population. And then there's a third and then there's a fourth. That, it, it, first off, is, is that um, a layman's, a, a good layman's understanding of how these things work on the human population? Yeah, Rayfield, yeah, this is Dr. Dan. It, it is. I think that's a good way to kind of put it into uh, context. However, that's very simplistic, but there are other nuances that have Doc, to be factored Dr. in. Dr. Dan, I'm a simple man. That's the reason why you're on the stage to, to see <laughs> with the complexity. So, so, so come on, please, please flesh this out uh, for us. And the most important, so you go through that first wave, if you look at um, the uh, previous pandemics that you had mentioned and even influenza, um, it goes through the population as a novel virus. So nobody has immunity to it, is the uh, theory and uh, in fact, and then everybody or a good proportion of the population gets infected. Some do not, some have developed some immunity. Um, this is when we were talking about, you know, herd immunity. And at that threshold, depending on how contagious um, and how fast it spreads and, and the lethality, so lots of other factors that you have to factor in there. And maybe 80% or 70%, whatever that threshold is based on the calculations, if that's met, then you start to see a decrease in the population that becomes affected or infected. If there's not that herd immunity, it doesn't wipe through aggressively enough through that population, then you have to figure some ways around it. We found ways to interdict such processes with vaccination, which has been the advent of the medical, medical profession that has been helpful to save our public health. And so if everybody gets vaccinated or a good proportion of the population gets vaccinated, they can act at that shield. The virus doesn't have a place to multiply, basically propagate and spread its material. A certain amount of the population is then insulated against that and it starts to die down or at least you keep the fire at bay so that you don't have these massive surges. But in this case that has gone through the population, we've had enough time where it actually can mutate and replicate and make these errors that it makes. Sometimes it makes these errors that makes it more vulnerable in that population, and, or sometimes it makes it more lethal in that population, or maybe not as lethal, but still as infectious or contagious, so it spreads through that population, hence Omicron, which we're entering. Hence, vaccine equity is a big issue. So that's where we are with that. And if we continue to have less defenses, and it's evading the immune system a little bit, and we get a lot of escape variants, we'll have more and more variants. So we'll continue the cycle over and over again. While it may decrease over time, we'll still be going through these, pretty much these surges in between. So that's the point of vaccine equity. I hope that kind of helps it to be clear. We need to make sure that it's not replicating in other populations and we're not getting a new strain or a new variant that actually we don't have uh, good defenses against. Okay, so you said uh, and there's this number between 17, let's say 80% uh, that we should have uh, you know, vaccinated or inoculated um, against a virus to have a level of herd immunity. So let's just take out the mutations just for now, because they add another layer of complexity to this. But if I'm understanding the history, generally the mutations have less and less of a, a deleterious effect on us. But let's just hold that for now. Should we in the West 
as well as inoculating the 70, the 80%, so we have herd immunity, then there are political ramifications for the fact that there is a stubborn 20 to 30% that won't have the vaccine. But I'm going to ask Mike and Steve, Kelly, et cetera, about that. Shouldn't we be focusing our attention on the developing world, emerging economies, where their populations are less vaccinated? Is it significant that Omicron came from uh, sub-Saharan Africa? Isn't that where we should be pointing our big vaccine guns, basically those populations who are nowhere near herd immunity, to inoculate the rest of us on planet Earth? But of course, I think that is accurate. That is uh, correct. And the question of where it really emanated uh, from is still out there. It's just that they were savvy enough and have been doing a great job of surveillance that they actually were able to pick that up. Could it have been a variant that developed somewhere else in an unvaccinated individual? Those questions are still yet to be fully answered, but those are the suspicions. So we'll go with the theory at hand. And yes, so to the vaccine equity point, those areas need to be targeted. Literally, we needed to make sure they were getting vaccinated. Everybody should have been on the same uh, page walking in lockstep in an ideal situation so that you can at least eliminate. This part of the equation is getting folks vaccinated. If it's 80%, 80% of the population around the world, not 80% in the United States or 80% in the UK or 80% in a certain area, it should have been worldwide, everybody on the same page so that the variants don't begin to emerge from another area. So everybody should be doing the same thing. That's where our focus should be. I mean, there's some crazy stats. You can ask me about it later, but I'll just throw some quick things out there. Look, 60% of the U.S. is uh, fully vaccinated. That means they've got two of their primary series shots. 70% of Europe has, and only 8% have received one dose in those poor countries that we're talking about. And that means about 1.5 billion doses monthly in the world are already being um, vaccinated and distributed in those areas. So what's going on with the other places that really need to get that? We're really having a problem. They're looking at a surplus of over 880 some million vaccines, but yet it's not getting to the places where it needs to go. And of those, 51 million vaccines are going to expire literally maybe in about a few months. So those are some of the, the issues we need to really figure out how we can get that. Literally about 5% of the world is receiving the vaccine in those areas. Whereas the other areas such as the UK and US have a majority of those vaccines. So that's where the inequity is and that's what we need to address. Otherwise, we'll keep talking about this and we'll be talking about this next year and the year after and the year after. Uh, Mike, is part of the problem, the reason why let's say that our government isn't, let's say, flooding sub-Saharan Africa, bits of Asia, South America, etc., with vaccines, because you know what, we're bloody scared and we don't know. Uh, and, and basically, charity be begins at home. We've got to look after our own populations first. Is this an understandable knee-jerk reaction in the middle of a pandemic? Um, I don't necessarily agree that it is. It's not absolutely confirmed yet the Omicron variant started in South Africa, but it's certainly there's evidence that it, some cases here have come from, from over there. But uh, former Prime Minister Gordon Brown uh, has been calling on uh, the UK and other countries uh, and, and the US um, to distribute spare vaccines that we have piled up that will eventually, or fairly soon, um, be uh, of no use to anyone, to be, to be distributed more widely into other countries. I think one of the problems we've got here is that we have in... Uh, 
Boris Johnson, someone who thinks a little bit like our old friend Mr Trump, uh, in that he wants to say that we have the best vaccines and the best uh, uptake of vaccines. So uh, right now they're trying to push for boosters, but the uptake isn't anywhere near like it used to be for the original vaccines. So it would look odd to some people if we were giving away vaccines while not having enough of our own people, the boosters, to the level that that we would like them to, to be taking it up. I speak to someone who's had my vaccine booster this week. Uh, Steve Crone, all around the industrialised West, there is this kind of stubborn minority of people who are resistant to taking up the vaccine. In Austria, they've said, enough with it. You're going to get it, full stop. I believe that the SPD in Germany if they haven't actually said with the new uh, government that they're going to mandate that you have the shot, they're definitely thinking about doing it. Is that the way to help eradicate this pandemic, is to say to all Americans, all Californians, all people in Los Angeles County, you're getting this shot? Whether, whether that, that is, is the degree of the effectiveness of that stuff, I will leave to Dr. Dan, because that is clearly <laughs> outside my expertise. Whether I believe that will happen, uh, I guess I could opine on that. But in terms of the medical effectiveness, I'll certainly leave that to the to the medical professionals. I, but, no, no, but no, to be honest with you, Steve, it was a political question. I, I, as as much as I don't understand it, and and I, I find the, the, this extreme resistance among a certain percentage of the population bewildering and exasperating. I don't believe, at least given the current trajectory, both behind us and in front of us as near as I understand it, I, I don't think it is going to be widely mandated by states where it is absolutely required. And I, I'm not saying I think that's a good thing, but but, it, but just as a pure prognostication, unless, unless things take a significant turn for the worse. And by, and by no means do I mean to minimize everything that's happened. Obviously, it, it, there's been a, a massive number of deaths and many more people who, who have been you know, ill and, 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 and badly affected. But I, I don't see that happening in certainly in the vast majority of states. I know that private employers have made moves in that direction. The federal government has made moves in that direction, obviously, in terms of federal employees, federal contractors, et cetera. But an absolute sort of blanket requirement that every citizen of a state go and get vaccinated or be subject to some sort of fine or other penalty. Well, good morning, Joe. President Biden's vaccine mandate for businesses was supposed to start going into effect this week, but now it's on hold amid heated battles in Congress and in the courts as well. Now, today, the Senate could vote to repeal the mandate altogether. It only needs a simple majority to pass. All 50 Republicans are planning to support it, and two Democrats intend to join them, Joe Manchin and John Tester. Now, the measure is still expected to fail in the House, and the president would veto it anyway, but this effort amounts to a public and bipartisan rebuke of the administration at a time when the rules are tied up in the courts. Brandon Trusclair owns 16 supermarkets in Louisiana and employs 500 people. His suit over the business mandate helped halt the order across the country. And he told us he can't afford to fire workers right now. 
We're understaffed right now across the board, understaffed in my meat departments, my deli, stockers, you name it. Uh, we're probably every bit of five to 10 employees short at every location that we have right now. So um, our challenge is to get labor, not, not laying labor off by all means. Kelly, I'm going to make create you King Emperor of the United States, King Empress, sorry, Queen Empress, good heavens, of the United States tomorrow. Whatever you say goes, how important, and let's just take business as one factor in the political calculus as to whether um, it is time to have a mandate, not have a mandate, whether to call the whole thing off, etc. How important is business, is commerce in this whole wider calculation of whether we lock things down and say to people, you can't go into businesses or we mandate that in in businesses that people have to be vaccinated how important is that in the whole wider calculus in terms of public health you are queen empress it's your decision you know my perspective a lot of people might argue with but if you're if you're asking you know what i would do given the power i would i would keep it keep it where it is i think that the businesses should be able to make these determinations for themselves and um i think that you know we're regardless of what it is that they decide to do, I think that there's going to be a segment of the population in every area of the United States that chooses, you know, where they shop, who they interact with based on the decisions that they make, you know, and I think that that will give, that will give a, a better snapshot of what it is that the general population wants to have happen. And B, I think it will, uh, continue to allow it allowing businesses to have the right to do this is is a what i think is the best thing i think forcing this on anybody by the government is only further pushing people who are who are hesitant to be vaccinated hesitant to take a lot of these things seriously it's only pushing them farther away from you know signing on or, or agreeing with the the things that a lot of people you know want to see happen i mean i think that the, the more people are vaccinated it's obviously going to be better for us but I don't see that any government action in terms of trying to force this to be uh, helpful. Steve, do you believe that maybe this is the last time that Boris Johnson will listen to Chris Whitty and and people like him? Because it seemed like with every fibre in his body, he didn't want to call measures right now, uh, especially as we're about to have Christmas. Where do you believe that the political calculus in the United Kingdom stands with the medical advice? So he he sort of hinted uh, in the press conference today that it might be the last time, but I would take that up in just salt because he said it was the last time, the last time as well. Um, I think probably the political calculus is going to be ultimately down to as much the, the, the sort of graph of the virus going up as it is about the polls going down, I think slowly people are getting more and more tired of kind of the forever restrictions. And at some point, it'll be, I, I think it'll be that kind of cynical calculation that it's now pretty unpopular. And I expect we'll get there. You know, I don't expect this to last months and months and months, but I think if it did, would people would be starting to get fed up from the sort of the slow trend in the polls I, I, I've seen. So I, I suspect it is that. And I think he, he's part doing this because he knows that people understandably are still worried even two years on. Diana, is this actually how we end a pandemic? It's by 
governments, by councils, by counties, etc., saying you need to do X and Y and Z, but actually by people just becoming tired, fatigued, not really bothering, especially if they can't see. And I think this is the one of the things which I don't think gets remarked upon enough with this pan- pandemic is that in the United States, there has been just under 800,000 deaths. But many Americans will not have seen uh, or not have known anybody that's actually died. But is this actually how we end a pandemic? By new mandates coming out from whoever, but by people on the ground not obeying them with increasing further? Yeah, I, I don't think so. I, I think that that is a recipe for continued variance and for making this something that everyone, even those who understand the science behind this, will have to live with. I've got to say that I disagree um, with comments that were made earlier, because here in the United States, our government actually does have the authority to enact compulsory vaccination laws. It's just unfortunately never discussed because we have a swath of people who, for whom it would not be politically expedient to remind them that since 1905 in Jacobson v. Massachusetts, the United States Supreme Court has said that legislatures do have the discretion to decide whether a vaccine is or is not in the public health interest. And so they have this authority. It's just, it's not discussed in the media. And I have not heard a politician cite it for the authority that that they do have. Um, I think that these mandates are the best way because it puts a timeline on when we're really going to address from a public health, from a sound scientific decision. I disagree that this is a business community decision. Business lives and exists in the United States under the benefit of the laws that we've created as a nation state. And the moment we put business first and ignore that it's the nation that creates the legal protections for all of us to live together, that's when we have the dis- disintegration of society and why we've got a whole plethora of issues right now because nobody's taking the helm, nobody's leading. Dr. Terry, I'm going to throw the last question to you before we open this up. So if you are in the audience, feel free now to raise your hand and, and, and we'll call you up. I think Ayanna uh, really nailed a point there, which was hard to refute, is that nobody, it appears that nobody's really taking a lead on this. Yes. There's President Biden. But I kind of get the feeling that he's taken half half of a step back. I put that down to uh, slight, slight fatigue. But there are a whole load of other considerations, I'm sure. Do we need really strong leadership running up to what could be the most deadliest phase, of, at least of, of the pandemic, of this wave of the pandemic? It's the winter in the Northern Hemisphere. Do we need some strong leadership, somebody to take this issue in hand and to be a strong voice? Is that what's going to give the public in the United States, in Canada, confidence to go that extra mile with these mandates? Well, I think there have been pockets of leadership. And so, you know, I feel blessed, frankly, that I'm splitting my time between two states, a state and a province that have taken leadership. They are requiring vaccines. and But the problem is that we don't have leadership at the global level because, you know, the reason we have these variants is because 
we aren't spreading the vaccines around the globe. So to me, it's not so much the fact that we don't have leadership in the U.S. It's that we don't have global leadership and the leadership of each individual country and each individual state. And frankly, each individual county has to decide how they're going to manage this politically and whether they're really going to step up. And when they do step up, you know, what happens? And and obviously here in the U.S., as you just stated, you know, we, we go for mandates at the federal level and to beat them back. And so I, I feel like we lost a great opportunity. And I blame the U.S. mostly because we had a president in power at the time when this all started, when it was really critical to take a leadership position who just, you know, was completely incapable and actually did the exact opposite, you know, basically said it wasn't, you know, a big deal. I think if we had had different leadership in the U.S. at the time, that who could have taken a lead at the international level and, you know, worked on, you know, even now getting better coverage for vaccines and so on, we'd be in a very different situation. But, you know, that's neither here nor there now. I just don't I think the time for leadership has passed by and we're just all going to be waiting around for this to become endemic. Philip Denver, you just joined us on stage. I'm going to ask a last question uh, to the panel who were with us before Philip joined us. And anybody feel free to to unmic and, and, and to jump in. Isn't there no authority over the nation state when it comes to world health, who we trust? The start, at the start of this pandemic, the World Health Organization took a little bit of a beating in terms of how it identified the crisis. Did it tell uh, the rest of the world quick enough? Did China tell the, the World Health Organization in time, etc.? And then we also have the current the political currents of Make America Great Again, which is fundamentally isolationism. We have Brexit, which is British isolationism. We don't want to listen to any supernatural body telling the nation state what to do, let alone the world's most, the world's largest economy and the world's fifth largest economy, the United Kingdom. Yeah, I I will say that the problem with isolationism is that you want it until you don't. I mean, we, the United States and and Great Britain, did not stop flights between the countries when it could have actually made a difference. And I'm not saying with Omicron it would have, because at this point in the pandemic, we know it's just a matter of time. But we, we choose to engage in these international relations when it serves us politically or optically, I should say. And then when we decide that we don't want to cooperate for whatever reason, that's when we want to start blaming. And I don't think that at any point the blame game with respect to China and who started it or who started what variant while we still have unvaccinated people to Dr. Dan's point globally is a beneficial one. I think that we wouldn't even get to the concerns about these variants and who started what when and that mudslinging if we focused on getting everyone vaccinated because Jacobson allows the president to require that of the population. And as Mike said, we wouldn't have vaccine rotting on the shelf that could be shipped abroad at this point in the game because everyone domestically to the political point of what it looks like if you ship it off when you have people here who want a booster, we wouldn't be at that point because the vaccine would have been a one and done deal in the countries that are producing it 
and it could have gone global. You go ahead, Steve. I think what, what I've what I've heard from from you know sort of epidemic specialists, and I work with one in in a, in a business I'm involved in, is if we don't figure out a way to have a global response the next time, and I don't know that you know that's a matter of of outright coercion, but if we don't figure out a way, you know eventually there's going to be that combination of a virus that is very easily transmitted, very deadly, and kills very slowly. And I, and I don't you know, mean to be so graphic, but if you put those three variables together in a virus, we're going to have a situation that is way worse than the one we are facing now. And if we're not prepared to make a global response, it could wipe out a substantial portion of the global population. So th th this is something that, that governments better start figuring out. Thank you for that. Philip Denver, you joined us on stage, sir. I'll ask your question. One of the things I don't understand is that we're quoting, Jake, I think what is it, Jacobson. I've actually brought up the case, yeah. So. Jacobson versus Massachusetts, this gives states the right to actually do it. This does nothing as far as administrative policy from, from the that's, uh, U.S. That's president. correct. It deals with local. And, and the country is deeply divided on the idea of a mandate, and no president in their right mind is going to try to put a uh, mandate across successfully through the legislation because you're not going to get it. So at the end of the day, if you want to get people vaccinated, unfortunately, you're only going to get a certain subset of those groups vaccinated. The other thing is that everybody's going to get COVID. Like, there's no doubt in my mind. I've listened to Scott Gottlieb talk about this. The only question if, it's a question of when. And, you know, when you look at this objectively, everybody can look at this in Monday back quarterback, but we have a vaccine. If people don't want to take the vaccine, they're going to be more likely to get seriously ill and die. But beyond that, at this point, it's pretty well controlled. And the vaccine be able to change the vaccine and curate it towards a new strain of COVID. They basically said they could do that as well. So at the end of the day, I don't think COVID's as big of an issue. We can go back to our normal lives. And if people want to take that risk upon themselves, let them take the risk. If employers want to mandate it, that's fine with me. I think you have agency with an employer and an employee, and they both have a right to say what their workplaces should look like and whether or not they want to actually be in contract. And if they don't want to get vaccinated, vaccine their employer mandates it, they can quit and go somewhere else. Brent, you are next, sir. Uh, thanks, uh, Royfield. So I, I don't think we can end the pandemic, frankly. I think the pandemic will decide when it ends itself, just as previous pandemics have. I think the Spanish flu lasted a few years uh, and then it mutated itself away. And we can only hope to be so lucky that, that something like this would happen. I've heard some you know, genetic geneticists and other bioscientists on Clubhouse kind of speculate that, that there does appear to be some data suggesting this is like a four to five year type of trajectory but I, I, I can't weigh in any further than that just to say that I've heard that. And in terms of, you know, vaccine mandates, you know, 
I, I admire Ayana's pro-vaccine stance. I'm pro-vaccine myself, just had my booster. It's not fun, I got really very sick. I'm having some side effects that um, I'm not gonna be happy about probably for a while. Disturbed sleep as I had after my second boost, second shot, but I'm still nonetheless very pro-vaccine. And I, I just don't think that it's at all politically feasible or legally probable that any mandate would ever be enforced in the United States, not to mention globally, right? So like, we can't forget we're just one country in a very big world and the pandemic doesn't know any borders. And, you know, this, this is just something that vaccines are a tool. They're not a solution to ending pandemic. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Thank you, Brent. Navanita, you're up next. I just want to say something that I think the Omicron variant has made one thing very clear that till the whole world is not vaccinated, we're not going to go anywhere, no matter how best we think we're doing. I think it's very, very, the equitability of vaccination all across the globe is a very important point. And I think we need to stress more and more about that. And today, what the UK did, this was a country that was saying, oh, there's going to be no plan B, no way, Jose, it ain't happening. But they had to introduce the plan B of of the guidance of working from home because the cases are multiplying so quickly and we do not have the detailed results as yet. And actually it was mandatory till now in London to wear face masks and in Scotland, etc., in public transport. Now it's become legally uh, mandating face masks. So prime minister who did not want to hear anything about plan b health secretary who did not want to talk about plan b they are doing it now so there is a reason for concern thank you navanita and what i should have done is everybody who's new on stage should have asked them exactly where they are because that's uh, really important is to understand that the, their perspective rizwan i believe i'm in you're... london <laughs> thank you for that rizwan you're up next i believe you're in oxford in oxfordshire in the uk I am indeed. I'm a, a humble cardiologist at the John Radcliffe Hospital in Oxford. <clears throat> and first, I'd like to reiterate what uh, Nepalita said 
Yeah, nobody is safe until everybody is safe. And vaccine equity, it's not entirely altruistic from a pure selfishness point of view. It behoves us in the West from the richer countries to ensure that there is a vaccine delivery, if only for our own selfish um, benefit, frankly, uh, because otherwise there will be more variants that will ex ex unfortunately exceed the Greek alphabet. That was the, the, the first point I wanted to, to reiterate. And then, so the other thing is, there was an article in the Sunday Times from some clinicians stating that 90% uh, of the people who are currently in intensive care with COVID are those in the unvaccinated. And unfortunately, this is then denying life-saving cancer surgery and operations and other treatments for other patients. So I think, you know, as part of our social contract, dare I say, and this applies in the UK, where healthcare is free at the point of, of use, that those who pay tax, which we're all mandated to do, and who partake in the social contract, which we're effectively doing in the UK, I, I, I'd say I, in, the, in the health system, we have a front care health workers have a mandatory vaccination that's only meant to come in early next year. I can't practice as a doctor without having hepatitis B vaccine. I can't practice as a doctor without evidence of having my annual appraisals, making sure I'm up to date, dot, dot, dot. And I think it's very late in the game, frankly, for the, the, the health secretary to be mandating vaccinations for frontline healthcare staff. And I, you know, I can go off and get another job elsewhere if I wanted to, if I didn't want a vaccine. I'm perfectly free to do that. I think, Rizwan, uh, you, you made an excellent point, which is about those who are doing, in effect, their civic duty are subsidising people who are not. But uh, and we do need to come back to that. Aaron Berger. To come up and respond to what Philip said there, the pandemic is not done. The pandemic is not done with us and we are not done with it. Uh, in the United States, you know, we have a daily caseload, uh, I think over 100,000 nowadays or nearing that. Uh, we have thousands of people dying every day just in the United States, right? And that's not even to mention long COVID where, and Dr. Dan can probably correct me on this, uh, about a, th a third of people who uh, get infected by COVID sustain long COVID. I've had friends who have to go back to the hospital just to get more oxygen, not because they have a COVID infection, but because their lungs are still in disrepair months and months after a COVID infection. To suggest that we are anywhere close to the end does a serious service to anyone still suffering from long COVID, as well as to people who are immunocompromised, right? We can go and we can feel good about ourselves if we I say, well, you know, it is, it, I, I'll finish. If we can go and feel good about ourselves and say, well, you know, hey, everybody should go and be able to choose. Yeah, that feels good. But what about people who do not have the opportunity to choose? Right. We can't go the same way that someone could say, well, you know, I have the freedom to go and put, you know, uh, choose whether or not I want to put something in my body. You know, those uh, other people have the freedom to not get sick from people who make such decisions. So we have to understand Aaron, that. Aaron, you, anyway, you landed your point looking at time. Guta, you're going to be the last person going to make the podcast, going to keep the room going. Uh, Guta Hegarty, over to you. 
Right. Hi, guys. Good evening. I um, actually just wanted to remind everybody uh, a little detail on vaccination history, right? We have Albert Saving, who actually declined to, to, to patent his polio vaccine and, not to, and to profit from it, right? He, they did a global campaign that almost eradicated polio. It, in most countries and this is not done anymore why can't we come together in cases like a pandemic that it's a global disaster that's it pfizer you don't own it right moderna you don't own it it belongs to public health and that's it is to save lives and i'll finish with this suggestion for debate in another occasion thank you Go on, talk to Dan. So the vaccine is not meant to be a force field. Very important. I said this on multiple outlets. So let's make sure we're clear about that. It's not going to prevent the disease. It may prevent uh, you having severe disease, meaning you're not seeing me in the emergency department putting a tube down your throat to help you breathe or sending you to the ICU. That's good news. Philip, I'm glad you're doing okay. You're alive. So the vaccine is working. So that's the evidence there. And I think that's important for all listeners to, to listen to. We will spread the virus. So we will, people will continue to have positive tests. But the question is, do you die? Do you get long COVID? Those are the questions. And so far, it's answering that the vaccine is doing what it is doing. By the way, the other medical countermeasures, remember this was my wheelhouse for the Obama administration and prior administrations actually on biodefense and medical countermeasures. We have those therapies that are coming along. Those are great, but still nothing has outpaced or outshined the vaccines. Those therapeutics may prevent uh, the disease from progressing, but their effectiveness and within the studies and efficacies are 50%, maybe uh, 60 in some cases, 30% for Merck versus uh, Pfizer. So I just want to put those out there. I guess it seemed to me, Dr. Dan actually said what I was going to say, which was, I think this is just going to have to be something we manage like the flu every year. I think that's different for people because we've largely lived 70 plus years where we haven't had to live with much more than the flu or colds. But um, and, 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 and you're not going, Marshall, and I'm kind of jumping in, but I'm going to let you continue after my little brain dump. And that fundamentally is, for me, at least at the start of this room, the start of the that's really where I, I came in with this. And, and I just think it's a philosophical question about the art of interpreting data as to when we're at the end of this pandemic. Because as I understand it, and I'm not a Dr. Dan, right? I'm not a, a Rizwan who's a cardiologist. So I'm not a medical person, but just looking at the historical trends with these things is that generally with each new, and I know there can always be an exception, but generally with each new wave variant it's less lethal it might be actually be more infectious but it has less of a lethal outcome because it's not not in the virus's purview to kill its host because then it kills itself so these things get weaker and weaker and and for me the fascinating question is what point do our leaders and do us as citizens because this is two-hander say we kind of have got this that our medical systems can cope. That was a key part of this. And we had to worry about our medical systems that they couldn't cope with the amount of people that were going into ICU. They've just about coped and they have coped. What point do we say that the emotional and societal developmental costs of this on young adults, on children are too severe? 
And then at what point do we say the data is the data? The path of this pathogen is its path. But at what point do we say, and it's art, not science, we declare that we can cope with this. This is part of our day-to-day -day lives. And it seems to me, if you look back at the, um, the pandemic 100 plus years ago, it was actually people just saying, eh, you know what? I need to get on with my life. This thing is going to be with us. And, and they did, and generally they did it a year too early. So the was the last wave actually did kill a lot of people when people were flouting uh, the laws put in place, whether it was in Britain or in the US or in Germany, wherever. But then two years afterwards, it, it was much less and the flu has never gone away. And, and, I, and I think I've let everyone down slightly in that I didn't really nail towards the end at that point. So I, I got lost in people's very thoughtful analysis of why we're still in this. And we're still in it. I'm not saying that we're out of it, but at what point? Sorry, Marshall, please continue. And then uh, let's just open the room up and let's just... No, no, you actually said everything I was going to say. I, like, that's kind of how I think of it. So it's just something we're going to have to deal with for a while. So I have a question for Dr. Dan, because I think we don't talk about long haul COVID enough. And I think that the analogy to the flu is poor at best because the flu doesn't cause early onset of Alzheimer's. And so if one wants to prevent these long hauler effects, if they want to make sure that they don't have diminished lung capacity and anything else, what is the best method to make sure? I mean, does the vaccine actually, I know it reduces the severe infection, but I have friends who are vaccinated who say that, oh yeah, I knew I was COVID positive because I had no other symptoms other than I lost my sense of smell. Well, the sense of smell is in the hippocampus. <laughs> if you're affecting a part of the brain that doesn't allow you to smell, then that, that has me concerned, but I'm not the scientist here. So I, I want to know from either Dr. Dana Marie, what is the best way to protect my brain, to protect my heart and to protect my lungs? Well, so I'm gonna preface this with a great question, um, Ayana. I don't have the answer for that. I think the best way we know based on the data, remember this is a dynamic of change. The data is the vaccine does work, it does protect. And in some anecdotal studies that we've seen, the numbers aren't that strong yet, but they'll be publishing more. The vaccine has been um, documented to prevent or going into long COVID. There are some also data and evidence that have shown maybe some certain antibodies enhance the virus. And that's what the concern was, that if you have a variant that's escaping the immune response, could that lead to some other problems? Like we don't know for long COVID for the long term, even if we have a variant that comes up that is that the immune system is responding to our T cells, B cells, antibodies, all that stuff as a result of the vaccine, but they still get, do they still get uh, long COVID. We we don't know if that's going to happen with a new variant. And it's not to scare anybody, but these are some questions that we really just need to think about. So the, 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 the story is not over yet, is what I'm trying to say. We are still in the midst of it. So I'd be cautious to make any assumptions while we want to be optimistic, and I sure want to be. It's not over yet. And people just, it's, it's a risk assessment, risk tolerance, do what you need to do. The best things we have are the old school public health measures that 
that are true, tried, and tested for over 100 years. Mass, social distance, wash your hands, be clean. And if now we have vaccines and we have the therapeutics, those two therapeutics, yes, they, they seem promising and actually can help us even if we have certain variants because it works on the protein synthesis without getting into a medical lecture here. But there still is that risk, and we need to uh, define that in, in terms of how what the long-term effects are. And then what Royfield was re- alluding to also need to be addressed, the mental health effects and these other policies what are economically, those impacts, all those things. It's not easy, y'all. We really are struggling with this, and it's on a global scale. Uh, so those are the things we need to figure out. We don't have the answers. And even with all the experts, many of my colleagues who I've been in the room with, Tony Fauci, great colleague, has been in my meetings, Scott Gottlieb and others, literally, at the end of the day, we're still learning, and COVID has kept us all humble. We have some ideas of where the puck may move, but it's not really clear. There still is some fog. I'd like to remind like folks who are getting tired of the pandemic, we have to remember, you know, the last time we had a pandemic, it lasted for three plus years. And that was that was without as much of an anti-vax craze as we have right now. That's without uh, as much globalization uh, as we have right now, right? I, I mean, you know, uh, we can't just throw our hands up and say, well, I'm done with this, you know, and then it has to be conspiracies. Like, you know, this is this is medicine evolving in real time, you know, and we should, by the way, this is like the easiest possible pandemic we could ever hope for. I mean, that's this is like super training wheels easy mode here. Right. Like just imagine if it was slightly more deadly, just imagine if it was slightly more virulent, right. Or contagious, you know, I, uh, that, that, that's the thing that people have to understand is that we have been thoroughly lucky that it is only this bad and that it has only evolved in these ways. Right. So that it is even this manageable. I think you you make a really good point, and it's something which I didn't quite raise in the first bit of the show when we were recording it. That I believe one of the reasons why this pandemic has been able to have conspiracy theories fly left, right, and centre is because many people who have it are asymptomatic. But also, whilst the figure of what some eight hundred thousand Americans who have died of COVID is a big figure it's still not quite enough of a big figure that everybody knows that their neighbor caught it and died by it. We're not talking like black death numbers, to, to, you know, to underline your point. The black death killed some 35% of people in Europe. So everybody knew somebody who died of it. Families were wiped out. Villages were wiped out. Your next door neighbor was taken off in a cart at night. This has not been the case with this. And 800,000 people is a lot of people, but it's 800,000 people in a population of 340 million. And this is one of the key reasons why people say there's something fishy here. I don't believe anything, there is anything fishy. This is, this is a real, real thing. But I think there's a very human way which we need to be able to look at this. And, and then I'm just struck by all the reading that I've done with the last pandemic which it feels very similar to Dr. Dan's point. There's a hundred years worth of social convention around this. You socially distance, you wear a mask. These are all the things which people did in 1918, 19, 
1921. This is what people were doing. But in the end, people got tired. And that pandemic killed 50, 000, 50 million people globally. And we're at 5 million with this. So to your point, um, Aaron, yes, it's, this is training wheel stuff, right? The, the Spanish flu killed 10 times more because it's a, it's a herd mentality in that people are, regardless of the science, regardless of the virulency of the, of the pathogen, are just getting tired. And some people will start to ignore the, the mandates, the strictures. And this is how the last pandemic ended. People just stopped ignoring the medical advice. And then the pandemic, sorry, and then the virus went on its natural course. Beautiful, Green, uh, and then AB. Rafael, so always great to hear you. Previous pandemics, I can list seven for you in recent history. Asian flu of 57 H2N2, Hong Kong flu of 68 H3N2, AIDS of 81, swine flu of 2009, SARS 2002, Ebola 2014, and MERS 2015. Those are recent pandemics that we've dealt with. Just uh, one interesting stat I'd love to just throw in is if you go to the New York Times COVID tracker and you hit that all-time button, you'll see that in the U.S. about one in 400 people uh, has has died of COVID uh, overall, right? That's a that's a case rate, or I'm sorry, a death rate of 238 per 100,000. Um, that's that's really wild. Like when I've I've been looking at some of these stats lately just to try and get some sense of, you know, we're two years in, how different policies impacted things, you know, and, and that's just one of the things that I noticed, you know, one in 400 people was really not a very big denominator on that. 400 people's, you know, a, a very, very small town, for example. And I, another one that I think is worth just taking a look at is I think people would generally agree that red states have been more uh, open in their policies and blue states have been more strict. And if you look, you know, sort by all time, you look at the case numbers per 100,000, um, you can see that stricter, stricter you know, responses have greater impact. And you can debate whether or not the, you know, sort of the cost of those restrictions is, is worth bearing or not. But if there was ever a, a question of whether or not things like masking and social distancing and you know, sort of the overarching set of things that, that people have done to try to combat COVID, whether or not those are effective or not, it's now very clear um, in the data after two years where we've kind of gotten rid of some of this, I'm sorry, the statistical noise of like what's happened where and when, you know, like obviously earlier in the pandemic led to more death, later in the pandemic's led to, led to less. But the overall case numbers, I think, are a pretty good way of, of judging it, especially when you see the, the trend, when you actually look at that data, it's really phenomenally clear. Like it's just red states moving into purple states, moving to blue states as you go from highest case rate to low. I'm going to throw the last question to you, Dr. Dan, because you're our medical panelist point person. Isn't one of the good things which is going to come out of this pandemic is that in the West, we're going to follow what they do in the East, that when people have a sniffle, they have a cough, they have a cold. In public, they wear a mask, uh, which shows a massive level of social responsibility. 
Yeah, Roy Phil, thank you. Uh, was your question, is that what's going to take place? I, yes, I is that one positive which possibly could come out of this pandemic? Let's look five, ten years down the line when we can safely say that uh, this pandemic is over. Is that one of the public health outcomes which would be a positive one? That would be, but I don't have a crystal ball. I would say I would wish that behavior change is something I could predict. Knowing where we are and what we've seen, we've learned nothing. We don't learn. We live for the moment. We're all guilty of this, yours truly included. We, we have muscle memory loss. How many pandemics or how many close to pandemics disasters have we seen? We can go through H1N1. We can go through Ebola. We can go through what uh, they've experienced with MERS. We saw as the first part in 2003. I mean, we have a historical context with the 1819, uh, 1918 flu. So, I mean, we have some historical context that has evolved over time. We've seen other countries who get this right at least with an infectious disease outbreak. Our civil liberties can become our Achilles heel sometimes. In this world, in this day and age, I, I wish I could say without a doubt that I'm confident that we will learn that. Yeah, we'll, we'll do it for the short period of time, but we'll forget lest we're constantly reminded of it and put laws in place that actually rem remind us this is what we do during these scenarios or situations. Otherwise, our liberties will take us um, will take us down, and this is why authoritarian regimes seem to thrive, at least somewhat. The inning is not full yet, so I'll say that with a caveat. Not that I'm supporting any authoritarian nation either. Those are my thoughts. Thank you, Dr. Dan. Thank you for bringing us home. Uh, there you go, folks. That is our our esteemed panel talking about how you end a pandemic and the. the fact of the matter is none of us actually really know. But you had on stage Steve Crone, Steve O'Neill, Mike Holden, Kelly Saunders, Ayanna Butler, Dr. Dan, we had Dr. Terry Gibbons, and then they were joined by Rizwan Sawa, Aaron Berger, Dr. Philip Denver, Brother Brent, Nabonita, Good Hegarty, and, and that was your panel. Don't forget, folks, we do these rooms generally every Wednesday or Thursday. Follow the uh, Mid-Atlantic Club. Go click, click that little green icon. And then whenever we go live with these rooms, you will be alerted. Uh, fundamentally in our DNA is the fact that we believe in civil discourse. And we, we believe science. And what's been great about this room is that we haven't had any kind of COVID deniers and whatever. Civil discourse is one of the foundational conditions of any working community, society, and ultimately democracy. And that's what we try and promote. But we do uh, believe in, in hearing a multiplicity of voices. And I think that's what you had here today at Mid-Atlantic. Please give everybody a follow. If you are in the audience, if you're on stage, uh, I think you have had some great uh, speakers today, some people who are very well considered and incredibly thoughtful. Mid-Atlantic is a podcast. If you're in the audience, um, why don't you go to a podcast of your choice and go and listen to uh, this week's uh, episode, which is all about the new German coalition uh, government. And we had Tyrion Fisher kind of expertly go through the reasons why it took so long for that coalition government to come to come to uh, into place but then also looking at what its program is going to be so we're looking at Germany after Merkel this week forget folks left of the center of politics is right thinking politics look after yourselves but look after your loved ones 
even more. This will be Mid-Atlantic. We'll see you all again in seven days' time for another rip-roaring, barnstorming episode where we'll look at worldviews from the politics and from the position of the United States and the United Kingdom. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.